Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to the i3 Insights podcast. My name is Daniel Grioli and I'm the Market Fox columnist for i3 Insights. I'd like to give a big thank you to all of our listeners. Your comments and feedback are always appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter at i3invest and at market underscore fox. Today I'm joined by Rich Pazina. Rich is the founder, managing principal, co-CIO and portfolio manager of Pazina Investment Management. Rich founded Pazina in 1995. The firm began managing client assets in 1996 and was listed on the New York Stock Exchange in 2007. As at the end of November, the firm manages $36 billion US on behalf of clients from around the world. Rich is in Australia to talk about the opportunities in value investing And I'm going to lob a few devil's advocate questions at him along the way. Rich, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Look forward to chatting. Me too. So we usually ask our guests to tell us a little bit about their background and how they got into investing. How did you get started? Depends on how far back you want me to go. We're happy to go as far as you like. I used to sit around the dinner table and listen to my father, who was an engineer. He had a little bit of money that he had saved in his life, but he dreamed of being rich. And his idea was to do this by investing in the stock market. Um, And I watched the trials and tribulations of somebody that hit it big, lost money, hit it big, lost money, and how that dramatically affected his personality. But I I was always intrigued. What sort of investor was your dad? I'm going to say for the most part, he was a value investor until he came to the conclusion, I'm going to say 25 years ago, that electric vehicles were going to take over the world. And he started speculating in battery technology companies. And he was about 20 years too early. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Right in the direction, but uh, off on the timing. You've had this early taste of investing, watching your father uh, trying to pick stocks in the market. What was the next stage in your journey as an investor? Well, when I was in in school um, studying finance and investing, um, 
I had the, uh, there was a requirement that we do what was called an advanced study project. It was a mini master's thesis, I would call it. And I met two other investors um, who have become lifelong friends, Joel Greenblatt and Bruce Newberg. And the three of us decided that we would try to recreate the work that Benjamin Graham had originally done that was that was institutionalized in the, the Graham and Dodd um, intelligent investor, which basically was to buy companies that sold below their net net working capital, which was a very interesting concept because there what what they observed was there there are times when companies sell for less than the value of the working capital they have on the books minus all of their debt, assuming that their fixed assets were worth nothing. And you could buy stocks cheaper than that. And and the argument was if those companies were also not losing money, they're likely to be smart investments. So in the late 1970s, we decided to replicate that study. The problem was in the late 1970s, they didn't have computers that had all the data on it. They had little books called stock guides, which we went through by hand. And we decided that we didn't have unlimited resources. So we limited our, our study to stocks that began with the letters A or B. Um, but effectively, we documented that by, by buying companies that sold below the value of their network and capital, you could dramatically outperform the market as, as, as recently as the late 1970s. And we wound up actually having that paper published in the Journal of Portfolio Management in the spring of 1981. So my, my sort of upbringing from my father, but also I'm going to say now not from a non-investment perspective from my mother, who, who had um, pounded into my head from, from the moment I, I, as far back as I can remember is you only buy things on sale. And if and there's no reason to ever pay full price. And there are people who that's their orientation in life. Um, that was mine. So it was kind of a natural fit to have my uh, investing style evolve that way. If I have to think back to a lesson from my mother, it would be how much for cash. I remember as a child, every shop we went into, she'd ask the storekeeper, <laughs> if I gave you cash, how much <laughs> <Right>. for cash? <laughs> But similar principle. So you you mentioned working with uh, Joel Greenblatt and who was the third? Bruce person? Newberg. Bruce Newberg. That would have taken you months to put that data together. It did. It did. And actually, you would. It, 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 it's almost comical to think about. They had the – this was at the Wharton School. They had a computer that was probably as powerful as your laptop there – and it took the whole first floor of their building and you communicated it with punch cards, um, which we did. And we so it's not just getting the data. It's then analyzing it by inputting it in a very, very, um, you know, esoteric way to interact with the computer. But um, it was a, it was basically a year long project. And now I'm skipping ahead a little bit to some of the things that we're going to discuss a bit later, but. 
Do you think part of the fact that the value premium existed at the time in the late 70s was because it was just so hard to measure value? And maybe today, now that it's so much easier, that's affected value investing? I, that I don't think is, is accurate. It's interesting that if you look back over history, there, there were have always been these cycles where value investing has worked and, and didn't work. And so if you go back to the 60s, we were in a period where it was called the Nifty 50, where you had all of these, these emerging consumer stocks that were growing like crazy, branded consumer products that created very high valuations. And there was a whole sector of the market that was left behind because people just wanted the excitement of being in the sectors that, that are working. And you can see very significant parallels to today's markets where people talk about disruptive technologies and want to invest with the companies that are disruptive and leave others behind. And I think value investing, I don't think the measurement is the issue. I think the issue is human nature, which is you want to invest in what's hot and what's working. And when something is in the other camp, and really the only reason that stocks would sell below their networking capital in 1979 was because they were not hot and not interesting. And when we did our test, if you went back a decade from when we did it, the market had was flat. So there was just no interest in the high market. High inflation period. It was a high inflation period. We ended the Nifty 50 with massive recession that was originally caused by the Arab oil embargo in 1973 and in the mid-70s. And then inflation was created. And this was the stagflation period in, in American economic history. And the markets just did nothing for a decade. I think in real terms, it was one of the worst performances for U.S. stocks, if I remember correctly. It was. It was. And it was one of the worst performance period for U.S. bonds in real terms, too. Because if you actually think about, if you had bought a 10-year treasury late in the 60s, you would have had it gotten a yield of, I don't know, 4%. And then you would have experienced a decade of double-digit inflation. And you would learn what it feels like to lose money in a bond investment. Maybe we'll experience that again sometime in the future. It's, there's a reasonable chance of that. So when you were putting these portfolios together, were you able to construct reasonably diversified portfolios of net nets? Were there enough of them out there or were you basically taking a punt on two or three stocks? No, no, there was not, there was not two or three stocks. But, but I would tell you that when I did this and I was a student, university student, I was completely unsophisticated on things like risk control. And so I'm sure there was massive industry concentration. Um, but there was enough companies that you could, it wasn't a few stocks. Amongst the stocks with the letters A or B, I think we, we wound up with 20 or 25 stocks that met that criteria. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm surprised. I thought it would have been fewer than that. I don't know that if you – for sure, if you replicated that today and used the exact same criteria, I don't know that you would find any stocks that met that. Well, that, that's, uh, I guess, one of the things that Ben Graham found with that strategy is that uh, it worked very well out of the 
the depression and during the 70s when stocks had been crunched by the the conditions that you just mentioned but right. outside of that i guess he had to adapt his methods and and use some other tools such as normalized earnings which is something i know you're a big believer in correct correct so we know or some of our listeners might know that joel greenblatt went on to bigger and better things he has one of the the best track records in hedge fund investing where to for you after Wharton? Well, I took a detour uh, and went to work in the oil industry. I viewed investing as a hobby at the time that w- was something that I would do in my spare time rather than a career. And, and off I went to work for a big oil company. Um, if, if you think about the environment we were in, oil prices, if I, if I converted them to today's dollars, hit $100 a barrel for the first time ever. And oil stocks at their peak were about 30% of the market in, in the market's total cap. And so the industry was hot. And it seemed like a very exciting place to go work. And it was a very exciting place to go work, very dynamic, lots and lots of capital spending. And as a newly minted financial analyst, the idea that you could get yourself involved in these giant opportunities and have an influence on them as a young man was actually quite interesting. I learned a lot about some of the craziness that happens in valuation. And and I don't know if you want to be... Please tell us. Give us some examples. In 19... Let me get my years exactly right. In 1982 or 83, the U- United States opened the Gulf of Mexico to open season for the oil companies. And they got to um, nominate blocks of of offshore blocks that they wanted to drill for. But it was a sealed bid process. So you you could do your analysis, submit a sealed bid, and and the highest bidder would get awarded that block and they would get the right to drill and, and, and get all the oil in that. So... I I worked as the financial guy in the offshore division of Amico Production Company and with a geologist and engineer and geophysicist. And we got very excited about one prospect. And we wanted to bid about a million two to acquire this block. And the spending authority of our little division was $1 million dollars. So we had to make a recommendation to the next level of management, which was the regional management that had $5 million of spending authority. But they saw this, and they had to have this block because they really thought this was going to be hot and wanted to bid $6 million. So they had to go to the corporate parent who wanted to bid even more and went to the board, and we wound up bidding $93 million dollars on the company that I had analyzed to be worth a block that I had analyzed to be worth 1.2 million. And then they opened the sealed bids and we won. And the second highest bid was $700,000 and we had bid 93 million. What happened after that? (laughs) What happened after that is when, when Amico did all of its post analysis of everything they spent, all the oil that they found Um, on both the blocks they paid a lot for and the ones they didn't pay a lot for, their aggregate rate of return on that investment was zero. So it shows you how emotions can drive perceptions of value 
that can often be massively different than the underlying arithmetic suggests. It's a, a great example of the winner's curse. And it's called the winner's curse, actually. And, and in a competitive bid situation where there's massive uncertainty about what you're bidding on, the winner is the most optimistic person. And by definition, they're probably over-optimistic and therefore not going to get a high return. Very good. So after experiencing the highs and lows of irrational human behavior at Aramco, uh, what was the next? Amico. Oh, sorry, Amico. Amico. Um, what was the next stage in your career as an investor? Where did you move on to? So I, I um, spent about six years working in the oil industry and decided that the big company environment wasn't for me. And I got a call from a headhunter that said, would you like to be an oil industry analyst working for a big brokerage firm publishing on the oil industry? And I said, no, why would I want to do that? I've read some of their reports and it didn't look like it was a professional level job. And the person said to me, you can make a lot of money doing that. And I said, well, why would anybody pay these people a lot of money? Um, I was very naive about this. And, and the, this woman said to me, just do me a favor, meet this guy. I think you'll like him. He's coming through Chicago, which is where I was at the time. And I said, okay, I'll meet him. And I hit it off with the guy who was the former oil analyst at Sanford Bernstein, promoted to research director, trying to find, hire his replacement. And I wound up saying, I'll give it a shot. So I, I went to work as a sell-side oil analyst, publishing research on big oil companies. And I came to, to, to see how the difference between analysis that's done in a company when you know all the data versus analysis that's done by external people who are only trying to guess at the data is massively different. And it amazed me that hundreds of millions of dollars moved on what you would only call scant information. And I was determined to try and do real analysis and I did that. I mean, I developed a whole framework for how to think about energy stocks. And it just so happened that this was when oil prices finally collapsed. So when I got out of school in 1980, oil prices hit $100 a barrel. By the time I left the oil industry and joined Sanford Bernstein, oil prices had fallen into the 20s in the same current, you know, in the current dollars of our current time. And so it was like a field day for me because it was clear that at that low a price of oil, you could not find enough oil to meet the demand. So oil had to be higher. It felt to me at the time that it was almost irrefutable that that was the case. So that was my first introduction to the world of investing where I um, published and told people to buy oil stocks when oil was at its like as low as it ever gets in 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 real terms, um, and then it started to work, and I thought, wow, this investing is pretty cool. Um, being an oil analyst though was not the be all and end all, especially as a sell side, because a sell side it's a sales job. You're not doing investing; you're trying to 
sell people your research and get them to like you and vote for you so that you're valued because you're valuable to them for them. And so Bernstein was also an asset manager. So they were a broker and an asset manager. And I started angling to move to that broke to the asset management side. And they, they made a deal with me effectively, give us enough time to, to get our money's worth of you as a publishing analyst. And then we'll make you, we'll put you, move you onto the, onto the other side. So it came time to go and they asked me to start up their small cap portfolio. And so I went, it was interesting. I went from a big oil company um, expertise to buying small company stocks. And I was the, turned on by this in terms of developing an investment process, hiring a team to help me do it, um, and having sort of what I thought of as the world as my oyster to be able to practice the trade that I believed in, Bernstein also believed in. Bernstein was a traditional, research-driven, real-value investor. It was a very nice fit. And brought that to launch right around the time that Bernstein was deciding to make some changes, personnel changes. And they asked me to take on the job of running all of research for Bernstein's um, asset management business. So I said I would do that, but I didn't want to give up the small cap, which we were just about to launch. So um, I was able to keep that role and and take on research. Um, and, and then as time went on, I took got more responsibility at Bernstein, eventually becoming in charge of U.S. equity investments. And by, by the time I reached my mid-30s, I had spent five years working with a, a, a a brilliant man, Lou Sanders, who's, I think, still reasonably well-known in the Australian investment community. I think he runs his own firm. He now runs his, his own, own name, firm. He, he, ha- he does. He left Sanford Bernstein. He was a mentor, and I spent five years of my life on a daily basis with him. And um, I decided I wanted to do this on my own. Um, now, part of it is personal dream. I'm going to say most of it his personal dream. And I I witnessed some very, very rapid growth at Sanford Bernstein. And I watched what happened as the company went from being this sort of boutique manager, building a concentrated 30 stock portfolio to being a multi-billion dollar manager where the money that they were invested started to swamp the capacity to, to create the same kind of portfolio. And they, so they started going from 30 stocks to 40 stocks to 50 stocks to 60 stocks. They started cutting off the low end of the cap range because they didn't have the liquidity to invest in that. Uh, they started adding quantitative overlay tools to try and control risk. And, and it became less interesting for a real value investor, a real researcher. So when I decided to leave, I said, you know what, I want to try and replicate some of the good things that Bernstein had, great research, systematic approach to thinking about how you, when you buy and sell, but without the computers to do mumbo jumbo that nobody really understood and without, and with a commitment not to take so much money that you can't continue to do what you set out to do. And that was that. So I left and started my own firm. Most people said I was nuts. 
I think you have to be nuts to do something like this. It's it's especially when you've had some success in a career. But you know, later in life, I was I I, I heard this interview that was given by David Rubenstein from the Carlyle Group, and he told the story about how he started his company, and he said he was a lawyer, and he wasn't that good at it, and so he quit. And he dabbled in something else, and he went back to the law, and he read an article that said most businesses are started by people between age 21 and 36, and I was 36. So I started the Carlisle Group, and I was 36 when I started my firm. I didn't read that article, but you know, at some point, it becomes too late to do something like this. You have to have some degree of craziness. And, and there's this optimal time when you have enough experience, but you're still naive enough that you do something like this. Well, I started mine at 38, so uh, <laughs> close, okay. maybe a little older. Well, but, you know, yeah. people live longer now, so, uh, so you've got to adjust <laughs> yes, it up. Yes. So there's so many ideas in, in that answer that you just gave about the journey through Bernstein into Pazina, and I want to unpack some of those ideas. First, I want to go back to where we started talking about sell-side research. When you're a sell-side researcher, you have to publish. And I've always thought that that changes your process in that you can't not have an opinion. You're in the business of offering an opinion, whereas as a fund manager, you can have you not have an opinion about a lot of stocks and still create a portfolio about the ones where you do. Do you think having to have an opinion has an impact on the way you do your research? Absolutely. What are not some only, of the effects Not only do you have to have an opinion, but you, you have to have a sound bite. You have to have something. You have to have a reason to call your clients to tell them something. And by the way, you don't have enough brilliant thoughts compared to the number of phone calls you have to make. So it's, it's not that exciting of a job, right? Did you find you were making stuff up? Like, I'll give you an example. I, I don't mean in a bad way, but I, I have a friend who was a, a very senior portfolio manager, but before he became a portfolio manager, he started out on the sell side. And he's Australian, but for a while he was working at Merrill Lynch in the US. And he told me the story of when he decided he wanted to move on to the asset management side was one of the stocks that he was covering was uh, involved in a merger. So he had to stay up all night to revise his estimates and work out what the impact of the merger would be. And that was back in the day when the research was published in hard copy. So he, he, he managed to get it finished by about 3 a.m. and get it off to the printer so that it would make the next day's run. And he said he had this epiphany at 3 a.m. Maybe it was the fact that he was overtired and overworked, that he was basically speculating on what would happen because he had to, because he had to meet a deadline. And he had no idea what it would do for the stock. And I think he'd been doing it for about 10 years by that stage. He said, there's got to be a better way to use my skills and my time. Do you ever have those sorts of experiences? I'll give you my, similar, my example yeah. of a similar story. One of the things that happens when you're an oil analyst is people want to know what your thoughts on oil prices are. And they want to know what your thoughts on oil prices tomorrow are, not long term. And there are OPEC meetings all the time. And there are political events that, ha that happen. So we were in the period where just before when Iraq invaded Kuwait, which is, what year was that? In 91? Yeah, I think so. 91. Um, 
And um, so one of the things that you do to be able to have something to talk about is you find consultants. So I found this guy who was an Israeli, I only can think a Mossad agent or something, <laughs> but he was an, anal an intelligence analyst. Let's call him that. And he was an expert on Saddam Hussein and, and Iraq. And I had him come to the United States and we talked for a lot. And he told me that there's no chance Iraq's going to invade Kuwait. And I stood up in front of our trading desk and sales course and said that and told everybody to call their clients and tell them that. And the next day, Iraq invaded Kuwait. <laughs> and, I, and I concluded, this is not for me. <laughs> uh, did you get any strange calls from clients after that or did... Did people give you a bit of flack? Or? You know, you, in the end, you realize that it's, you're mostly in the entertainment business at that point in time. And the idea that that's the way that you should invest, it seems particularly silly to me. Another idea I wanted to come back to in in your last comments were, was I detected a little bit of skepticism about quantitative investing. Uh, and, and I wonder if that relates to a story that um, I heard a few years ago. I was actually lucky enough to be in the, the class uh, at the Columbia Business School in the Summer Value Investing Program. And Bruce Greenwald, who I believe is a good friend of Lou Sanders, mm -hmm. was telling a story that um, Bernstein used to run a quantitative U.S. value portfolio. And uh, I think it was largely based on price to book and a couple of other things. And he said that uh, that Lou had told him that the quant team every year had discovered what they thought was the factor to add. Uh, and every year they tried a different factor. That uh, and, in, and in all cases, the factors um, did really well in sample and then just detracted value out of sample. And they would have just been better off sticking with, with price to book. And I think they had a little bit of momentum in there as well. Is that... Well, look, I... Yes. First of all, when, when you actually have seen how quantitative models are developed, when you get these multivariable, highly statistically engineered models, they, they, they can't possibly work because you're going to look at 20 years of data, which seems like a lot of data, and it's really not enough to draw st statistical conclusions, particularly when you're going to say there are 25 factors that contributed to that performance, and now I have the coefficient that's going to go on every factor to give me the answer. And when you hear people describe that that's what they do, it, I just shut it down, right? I tune out. First of all, I don't, and I hear all the time, I get questions all the time, can't we replicate what you do with a factor model? And my response to that is value is not a factor. Price to book is a factor. Price to earnings is a factor. Value is a philosophy. And if you try to do it with accounting factors, you, you reference this. I, well, maybe that was when we were talking before we were recording. But if you rely on accounting factors to determine what cheap is, you can really mislead yourself. Here's an example. Price to book work. I can, I can show you the data that says for, for 100 years, buying low price percent a year, I think it is, some, is the some, historic correct, spread. Correct, correct. And after, I don't think the data goes quite back 100 years, but it's close now. And, you know, if you make 4% a year better than the, than the market after 50 years, you have 10 times as much money. I mean, it's 
That's the wonders of compounding and spectacular differences. But if you don't have thought involved, here's an example. In this most recent commodity meltdown from 2014 to 2016, every commodity stock screened on price to book. The problem was the book value was flawed. And the book value was flawed because in the period leading up to the downturn, commodity prices were so high that you were making so much money um, that you didn't care how much you spent in building a new facility. So, for example, iron ore, which was the most egregious version of this, for, for 100 years, the average profit was about $10 a ton making iron ore, and it got to $140 a ton. So you're making 14 times what, what was normal. And with that arithmetic, if you developed an iron ore mine, you'd get all your money back in one year. So what do you do if you're in that business? You say, hurry up. That's what you do. You do a oh. fortescue. You <laughs> lever up and go for it. Right. And, and by the way, when every company in the industry decides at the same time that they want to expand – they bid up the price of government concessions. They all bid for the same engineering talent. They have the same labor pools that they're bidding the price up. They get expedited delivery of steel to build the plant. And when you see what happened, you could spend two to three times what was normal to build the plant. And that's now capitalized as your book value. It shows up. This is your book value. And you know, in a normal environment, you could build the same plant for half the price. So the fact that it's selling for 50% of book value is meaningless. The computers don't know any of this stuff. And, and by the way, it's not brilliant research to figure it out. It's just taking your time and studying it. Anybody could have figured this out if you spent a little time. So to me... But... Every factor is imperfect. Do you think, though, the factors capture enough of an effect? Or by that, what I mean is you know, if you can invest in the factor, say, for a, a fraction of a, an active value strategy, but the factor captures you know, most, maybe not all, but mo most of the value uh, premium, if you believe in, in that, do you think that's a, a worthwhile trade? Well, yeah, sure. It's a it's hard to argue that it's not a worthwhile trade. The question is, can you add value over and above a naive factor that more than pays for the fee? As by, I mean, it has to substantially more than pay for the fee because it's not going to always work and you have to take the chance that it doesn't work. And my feeling is that a factor, a system, I'll call it a system, combined with some human judgment is is better than just the system itself and pays the, for the incremental fee. In a world where people are highly sensitive to fees, they've become more and more skeptical about that. But But I think most of the skepticism is driven by people who built big businesses and then really struggled to outperform because their businesses were so big. And, and you can't beat the market by being the same as the market. You can't. So, so if I'm a pseudo index provider and trying to charge an active management fee, there's no good argument for that. So yes, switching to something different than that is good. I think switching to a value factor-based model is fine. But 
I, I actually believe that human intervention can be positive. It can be negative too. You can get the emotions can take you in the wrong direction. So you have to have the right personality to be able to dispassionately look at things and try and tune out the noise of what you're reading in the newspapers. I was interested to hear you say that you would hope that the human intervention should be able to deliver incremental return over and above the factor. And I know that you've done some work in your firm to see whether or not your portfolios are doing that. But I remember back to when I was more active in manager research, that was often my first question in a manager meeting was, well, your portfolio construction process starts with some sort of screening process. If you were to just take your initial screen as a portfolio, which is essentially what a factor portfolio is, it's a it's created using some sort of metric to screen the universe. Do you outperform that? And it never ceased to shock me that the majority of managers hadn't even looked at that question. Right. I've always wanted to know the answer to that question. Me too. Um, and so we do look at that. We've we've compared our performance against a low price to book, simple low price to book model. And there are times when you add a lot of value. There are times when you don't get it right either. Um, but but the last five years has been a great example of when where low price to book just hasn't worked at all. Um, and I think the five the last five year period would have paid for a lot of mistakes that you had made in prior years. Okay, so before you started your firm, what was it like to have to tell Lou that you were leaving? Well, it's interesting because Lou came to me before I told him I was leaving, and he said, we'd like to make you the global head of research. I was the U.S. head of research. And I said to him, I quit. (laughs) (laughs) But he didn't see that coming. (laughs) Um, And I I basically said, I can't accept this, Lou, because I'm, you know, I'm flattered, but I really have this dream that I want to go do this on my own, and so I'm going to decline. He didn't believe me, actually. So he just said, yeah, right, go back to your office. You think you're playing hardball or something (laughs) like that? And then, you know, it turned out I was serious. Look, Lou, I was always amazed at how Lou glowingly spoke about the people who left and went on, left Bernstein and went on to successful careers. I don't, I never got that. I said, Lou, why not keep them instead of being happy that they left? He told me, you know, look, one great way to attract people to your firm is if they become successful, both either in or out of your firm, it doesn't matter. Okay, I I sort of saw that. But he took more like fatherly pride. I get that now. Because now I've experienced that, where some of the people that I started with 20 years ago have left and gone on to be successful investors. And you sort of do feel that kind of pride. It's not like you can't create an environment that is going to satisfy everybody's personal needs. And if some people have this this drive or dream to try and do something on their own, you, you really do wish them the best. And, and to some extent, it validates your own thinking that somebody's trying to copy you, right? And I'm you sure- raised a little coin. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great attitude to have that uh, you can be so magnanimous and uh, supportive of don't forget, this is a very gigantic market. I mean, the size of the stock markets are globally are trillions and trillions of dollars. So, you know, um, 
the, these guys are not starting another BlackRock. They're starting another small firm, and there's plenty of, of assets to go around. And it, it, it's not, I mean, it is competitive, obviously, but it's not competitive at that level where you're worried that they're taking food out of your mouth when they leave. So you've, you've turned Lou down. You've made the decision. How do you start an asset management firm? You have to be naive. That's really what I told you. So I, one of my Did partners, you have any clients day one? Or? Uh, Joel gave me a little bit of money and said, here's, the, here's something to get started with. And he let me use his conference room as our, as our office. Um, but, but what really happened was one of my Bernstein partners said to me, I have a, a friend who's a woman who, who ran back office operations for like 20 years and is not happy with her job. Maybe you should talk to her. So I talked to her, and she started asking me, well, how are you going to do this? How are you going to handle this? And how are you going to do that? And I'm thinking to myself, I didn't even know you had to do those things. <laughs> you know, when you're in a big company and you say you want to buy a stock, you just, it just sort of happens. Ha- it right? happens. It's, it's like <laughs> when you live at home and your laundry just magically disappears and Correct. comes back clean. Yeah. Correct. Um, so, you know, part of me said, God, if I'd known that, I might not have quit. Um, but she was a godsend in the sense that she knew how to do that. And so I didn't ever have to deal with anything about um, portfolio accounting and reporting to clients and, you know, entering all the data from the trades into the system and that kind of stuff. So I I started with five people. Um, She was the, the chief operating person. I hired two um, analysts. And basically, the way I got the analysts are I said to my, what now were my former colleagues at Bernstein, can you give me your reject pile of your resumes, the people that you've chosen not to hire? And they said, sure. So I took their reject pile, and I found two guys, both who have gone on to very successful careers in other firms. But um, I remember going back to my wife at the time and, say, and, and saying, I just met the smartest guy I've ever interviewed in my life. Now, these people had no prior investment background. They were just raw smart. And we set up shop with the little money that Joel had. Um, and, and Joel was my backer, basically. So he owned a stake of the business in, in exchange for, um, for funding the startup costs, effectively. How did that work? Because as an investor himself, did he have views on what you should do or how you Absolutely. should do it? He left oh, it all to no, you. No, no, He had one view, right? He, he said to me, I don't believe in pure value investing. I think you should take the results that you had in your own record at Sanford Bernstein and go back and exclude the one-third of the portfolio that are the worst businesses that you can objectively measure. And he wanted me to objectively measure by the normal return on equity. Take the companies who had the lowest one-third normal return on equity, exclude them. And I said, it's not going to make any difference. If you buy cheap stocks, it doesn't matter if it, they're good businesses or bad. If you're buying them for half price, it works. Well, I was wrong. Um, I was completely shocked when I did that analysis. So he convinced me, not that you should seek out highest return on equity businesses, but that you should weed out the lowest, right? And now I sort of get it. If you're investing in companies that 
permanently in their normal state barely earn their cost of capital. Even if you're buying them at half of what you think they are, what they're actually their value is depreciating over time rather than appreciating over time. So if you don't get the timing exactly right, it's a wasting asset that you're buying and and you're just barking up the wrong tree. So that worked for me. I actually modified the way I thought about it very, very early, um, really before we started managing client money. Tell us a little bit about your approach to managing money. We mentioned earlier that normalized earnings is a big part of what you do. Um, Take us through it. There's There's no secret or magic about value investing. Every investor that you ask, what do you do? We'll all say basically the same thing. I buy good businesses at low prices. Who doesn't want to buy a good business at a low price? There's a problem, though. Good businesses don't sell for low prices. And, you know, for 30 years, I've been looking for the rapidly growing company with the great management team and the high margins and the unassailable franchise and the clean balance sheet for a low price, and I'm yet to find that. So how do you think what makes something cheap? Well, what makes something cheap is once one of those things is missing or one or more of those things is missing. And so you can choose to pay up, but then you're not really a value investor. Then you're betting that the company is going to be even better than everybody thinks it's going to be. To me, that seems very hard to do. Fortunately, businesses have problems, and the problems are not always permanent problems. So something can go wrong. And that doesn't mean that the franchise is no longer valuable. And so the question is how you identify that. So what a norm, the concept of normal earnings is to say, well, businesses have periods that are great and periods that are not so great. And if you look over history, there is some kind of cycling around that average. And, you know, it's formally called regression to the mean but in reality, what it is, is human nature, right? If, the, if, if you're running a business and bad things happen and your earnings disappear, disappoint, and you're running the company, what do you do? The answer is something. You don't, do, you don't stick your head in the sand and say, oh, well, you actually change your product, change the people, lower your costs. You know, you, you, you do something. And most people don't want to believe that that's going to work because the most recent actions of this management team were that they produced bad results. And now they're telling you, oh, don't worry, I'm going to fix it. And people don't want to believe that until it happens. So what you can do is you can, you can start, and for us, the concept of normal, we do it in two stages. One is naive. That would just be the average of the history. So I can look at the last 10 years and say, what was the average growth rate and the average margin of this company and extrapolate that into the future and rank stocks based on their price compared to the earnings that you would naively extrapolate from history. So that would I would call that the naive normal earnings estimate. So what's at the top of the list when you do that ranking are companies that sell for a low price relative to what their histories suggest they ought to be earning. Usually they're not earning what their history suggests because the computer is just drawing a straight line through this. The computer is naive and the actual deviates from that. And so you have a very rich universe then to go in and say, well, 
are these problems temporary or permanent? Is this business really any good or is it structurally impaired? And you, you want to, and in truth, it's uncertainty about that that creates value. Value is created because you don't know what's going to happen. And nobody wants to invest when they don't know what's going to happen. They want certainty before they invest. And so when there's uncertainty, you very often get the ability to invest in skewed outcomes, meaning if the company succeeds at restoring their former luster, but which, by the way, they're trying very hard to do, you make a lot of money because you bought it at a low price. And if they fail, you don't lose a lot of money because the market already thinks they're going to fail. And that's that skewing that makes it work. But you have to have some concept of what's normal to be able to execute this strategy. So for us, normal is what should the business be able to earn over the long term, given its history, given the industry that it competes in and its particular strengths or weaknesses, and given the management and its business plan, what's it rational to believe that this company should earn? And then you want to buy at a low price relative to that. But you also want to buy to make sure that if they blow it, they're not so financially levered that they're going to go out of business because you don't want the downside case to be zero. You want the downside case to be, well, I'm not going to make any money. The ideal situation is you break even in the downside case and you make a lot. Now, you don't get that many of those opportunities, but they come. And the market's giving you those today because the market's very, very pessimistic and disruption. Um, I guess that's a good segue on to the reason for your visit to Australia, and that is to talk with clients about where you're seeing value at the moment and where the opportunities lie. Yeah, that's look, value cycles happen because everybody adopts the same opinion about the market. And usually when the value spreads get very wide, meaning cheap stocks are very cheap compared to expensive stocks, it's because of a narrative that develops in investors' minds. I don't think you can have an investment discussion today without the word disruption being used. I mean, it is multiple times, right? And people are seeking out disruptive technologies and shunning companies that are um, potentially in the crosshairs of the disruptors. And then when you have some successes, like obviously Amazon is a huge example of that kind of success, People then believe whatever Amazon does turns to gold, even if what they're trying to do next is not as obviously going to work. So the idea that you could sell a book online cheaper than the process of producing one and shipping it and sending it out, okay, that, that's about as obvious as you can get. And they've expanded it quite quite dramatically. So they've been very successful. But we're at the point now that anytime anybody mentions Amazon's getting into that business, the incumbent stock prices get killed. Well, we saw that with healthcare, didn't we? Totally with healthcare, right? So if you took a, a drug distributor and Amazon, and Amazon doesn't say anything. That Amazon is a secretive company. Um, so you're hearing stuff. And I think Amazon's modus operandi is to try a lot of things. And some of them were going to work and some of them are not going to work. But the market, when they hear that they're trying, just believe everything is going to work. And so 
Drugs is a very, very different concept than me ordering toothpaste online. I push a button and the toothpaste comes and my credit card gets charged. Um, drugs, you can't do that. I can't push a button and drugs come to my house. I have to get a prescription from a doctor. I have to deal with an insurance provider. A licensed pharmacist who's responsible for my life has to evaluate the drug interactions and make sure that it's safe. It's just complicated. It's not like this mode of getting drugs delivered to you is a very new concept. I mean, they used to they used to call it mail order drugs, but mail order been around for decades. It's just hard. If you've ever tried to order drugs that way, this is my own experience. You push the button to say, I need a refill, and then it doesn't come. And now you run out in your house. So you call the provider and say, how come my pills didn't come? And they say, well, we had to reach your doctor called them three times. They didn't return the phone call. Can you please call your doctor and tell them to call us? By then, you're getting infuriated about this. And you say, you know what? I'm just going to go and get it myself. Um, and you call the doctor and say, could you call it into the local pharmacy so I can go and pick up the prescription? So it doesn't mean it's these are insurmountable problems. I don't, I don't mean to suggest that. I just mean to suggest that this is very, very different and difficult. So when those distributors get priced as if Amazon's going to be successful with 100% probability and this business is going to waste away over time, you sort of say, maybe I should invest because I don't know. But if the worst case happens, I'm just going to collect the money for the next 15 years and then they'll be out of business and I'll get my money back. And, and the best case is it's hard and Amazon doesn't and I actually make a lot of money. And so that's the kinds of things that are available in the marketplace today. And, and the reality is disruptive technologies have been around forever. And this is not new. Very, very often the incumbents are the beneficiaries of the disruptive technology. It's not always the new guy on the block who comes up with, you know, Alipay and therefore, we don't need a bank. If you take banks as a great example of where this has mostly played out already, most of the technology is being adopted by the incumbents. I had a very interesting conversation with the CEO of Citibank a year ago, and he described this situation where he said, four years ago, I used to have these 26-year-old CEOs of startup fintech companies coming into my office and saying, I'm going to put you out of business. And I, I say to the, to the person, good luck getting your banking license. But what I'd really be thinking is, you seem like a very bright young man with interesting technology. Why on earth do you want to start a bank? It seems about the dumbest idea you could possibly have. Today, I have a new crop of 26-year-old CEOs lined up outside my office to sell me their technology because they figured this out. The government is not letting go of banking. And by the way, a bank's value comes from the deposits it gets. So the question is, if I have better technology and I'm a trusted brand, am I better at deploying that technology than somebody, off 26-year-old kid off the street who has a software package? And the answer, I think, has well been, has been resolved already. And I think those kinds of things... You know, we're, we're seeing that maybe in the auto industry. 
right? You have a you have Tesla with interesting technology to on batteries and on systems integration. And then they decide to make cars. That was the dumb idea. Have you um, seen the Bloomberg video on that? I have not. So Bloomberg had this clip that they published recently where they used a, a research group, I think they're in Detroit as well, and they specialize in buying cars, stripping them down literally to the bolts, and then creating reports for their competitors on what goes into the car. Yeah. And they were interviewing them because they stripped three Teslas down to the bolt. And it was very interesting because what they pointed out was that the battery technology and the software and, and hardware that goes with that was by far the best in the market by a huge margin. But what they then went on to describe was that the construction of the car itself, particularly the chassis, was really, really poor. And they gave one example. They, they literally showed a wheel arch in a Tesla and it was constructed out of eight separate parts. And they were saying, this is just crazy. No car manufacturer would do this. They would construct it as a single piece. And no wonder Tesla's having all of these production delays and all of these things because they're just not making cars in a sensible way. Well, I think it's because it's hard to make cars, right? And by the way, Tesla still is selling cars at $90,000 price points, and they're not making money. And to, to be a successful car manufacturer, you have to do this at a popular price point, mass produce at a popular price point. Just imagine if Tesla went all, to all its competitors and said, I'm going to sell you my technology at a 50% margin and let you make the cars. Now, they might have not had the market cap that they have today, but and if they don't figure out how to make cars, they're not going to have that market cap in the future. And so most car manufacturers are not brilliant technology people. Other people invent the technology, and they incorporate it into the cars. That's a sensible industrial model. You know, today, if you went and bought any luxury car of any brand, they have all the pre-autonomous driving technology in there, the lane warnings and the automatic braking and adaptive cruise control. And Pick a brand. You can't tell the difference because they bought it from somebody else, and they're just installing it the sensors and the software and the systems integration. And that's much more sensible. So I can buy a big car manufacturer today as if they're not going to be in business 10 years from now, which seems unlikely to me. So disruption is obviously a source of opportunity uh, for value investors. What are some other sources of opportunity that you can uh, tell us about at the moment? The other major opportunity is the market's preoccupation with the next financial crisis and the next economic downturn. And that's really become evident in the last six months, where part of it is tied to Trump's trade um, war. But, but we all have sort of gotten to this belief that this economic expansion has gone on for a long time, and therefore the next thing that has to happen is a recession. The problem is the, 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 the magnitude of the expansion is over the entire last decade globally is not materially above the long-term sustainable trend rate for economic growth. So we didn't build up any excesses in the economy. So the idea that we should have a recession and it's going to look like the last one, that's exactly what's in people's minds, seems as far-fetched as anything. Now, I know when you're having an economic downturn, the last thing anybody wants to do is buy banks. So they all sold off the banks, right? But 
and banks do make mistakes. They're, they have a history of making mistakes. They never have a history of making the exact same mistake the same time thing they did the last cycle. And that's what everybody's believing is going to happen, that there's going to be a massive credit cycle because they're lending too much money to private equity firms or whatever. And, and so there's been an overreaction to a potential economic downturn where stocks that were not expensive to begin with took a big leg down and are now selling kind of at all-time lows on an absolute basis now compared to things like current earnings, current cash flow, sales, book value, any metric that you that you care to use from use. And so those are the two main items that, that are creating opportunity today. Just want to ask you two quick questions that we ask all of our guests. The first one is, what lessons did you have to learn the hard way? And the second one is, what tips can you give uh, investors and listeners of the podcast to improve their investment decision making? The biggest lesson I learned in my life was value investing and excess financial leverage are not good bedfellows. Um, you don't want to be messing with things that are that have the chance of going bankrupt. Because even though they appear to be very cheap, you're playing, you're gambling at that point in time. And you can convince yourself if they return to normal that you're going to make 10 times your money. And if they do return to normal, you are going to make 10 times your money. But the odds are that you're fooling yourself. And so you have to be cognizant of that. Um, and really, the advice that I have to investors is develop some kind of systematic discipline, stick to it, and just have common sense and apply it to that. It, 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 don't say, my goal is to pick what stock's going to go up next, because then you're, all you're doing is trying to guess market sentiment as opposed to thinking about what's something worth. And if you change that mindset and apply common sense to it, you, you, you don't have to be a professional to make this work. Rich, thank you very much for your time and hopefully we can have you on the podcast as a guest in the future. I very much enjoyed this and uh, I look forward to that invitation. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.